Welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast. My name is Ralph Cree. This is brought to you in association with bodyheartmindspirit.co.uk. Today I spoke with Damien Walter about sci-fi. He's a sci-fi expert and we talked about sci-fi as the mythos of science or the mythos of modernity. And Damien, um, he writes on technology, culture and science fiction for The Guardian, the BBC, Independent, Wired, BuzzFeed, SFX and Eon. He teaches rhetoric of story and writing the 21st century myth to over 35,000 students worldwide. And he has a fantastic podcast called the Science Fiction Podcast. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, something I love, I've been watching sci-fi and fantasy movies since I was a kid. That's It's my go-to genre um, and uh, it's a subject dear to my heart. I tried something different with the audio this time. Um, I tried using the original sound on Zoom. Um, so my voice will sound a bit different. I'm just experimenting to see if that's better than using all the compression and stuff that you can use on Zoom. Um, and also Damien's uh, video, uh, is very high quality video footage on his end, but um, slightly laggy on uh, with the audio. Um, apart from that, the, the content is fantastic. I really enjoyed this conversation. I love meeting Damien and uh, hope you do too. Okay, so Damien Walter, welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you in person. Well, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Ralph. It's uh, it's really nice to be invited on to yeah. to speak with you. And you're in Bali. Um, at the I moment, am, which yeah. is really cool for me because I, I went. I did a two month uh, backpacking trip in Bali, yeah. 1997 with a friend it huh? was like the first ever solo traveling trip i'd done you know like on, on okay you know as a as a young man and it was quite a culture shock i think i, I went to ubud where you live um, mm -hmm. yeah yeah which um, must have been much less developed yeah then ubud is like a little hippie yoga mecca now but back in 1997 i think there was much much less here yeah it was a really cool place uh, and mm. uh, i can remember it very well so Today, um, we're going to talk about sci-fi as the, the mythos mm. of modernity. Um, and, uh, you know, in the introduction, I've said before this, uh, you know, said a lot about who you are in the sci-fi world. And um, you are a genuine bona fide expert in the field. And um, thinking of uh, sci-fi as the mythos of modernity seems to be a core theme of your work. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm very interested in sort of <clears throat> what John Verveke calls the religion without, it's not a religion. Mm. So it's, it's kind of transformational practices and media, um, and a kind of world building around modernity that, that, that's harnessing some of the best aspects of the pre-modern transformational techniques and technologies mm. that have been carefully crafted over tens of thousands of years. Um, and I, I feel that 
modernity really needs to get a handle on this to um, deal with what lots of people have called the meaning crisis and uh, diseases of despair are an mm. enormous cause of death in uh, the modern secular world. Um, and that's really saying something uh, about you know what's sure. going on. Uh, I think off the top of my head, I read Jamie Wheel's new book very recently, and he said, I think this is correct, that more people die of diseases of despair than natural disasters and armed combat combined around the world, mm. which um, is pretty shocking. So this is this is a sort of an attempt to directly address that issue because I think there is a place for harnessing these this kind of transformational world that is derived from mythos um, for the modern world and it doesn't need to look like old school religion and I think sci-fi mm. is one of and sci-fi and fantasy is one of the kind of uh, cultural forms that already exists we can kind of it's not really repurposing, but it's just, it's truing that up to its full potential. So that's mm. sort of like context for our, our conversation. Um, so but perhaps we, we could start with you defining myth, mythos and mythology, because they're quite useful terms to unpack. Mm, sure, yeah. That's a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, just thinking about what you were saying about diseases of despair, there that was really the starting point for for science fiction with me um not least because i have my own as every human does you know but very much when i was in my kind of teens and 20s i went through great despair and great diseases of despair uh, and i found that science fiction was part of my uh answer to that or some kind of like obsessive level of of interest in science fiction stories which i was then later trying to kind of understand uh and unpack and i was also working with people who were um very much dealing with their diseases of despair and i would often gravitate to i was basically a kind of arts social worker in the city of leicester for about a decade uh, after I'd gone to university there and that had led me into doing this work. And I often worked with uh, kind of young men or older men, you know, sometimes middle-aged men who were very like socially isolated, maybe were in prison. I was kind of running writing workshops in prison, maybe were um, kind of cut off in the community. And I found that they had this common interest in science fiction very often. And it was a way for them to try and uh, process and understand the world because um, that's what we're doing with myth I think and our mythos it is our um, our basic level of of providing meaning to um, the reality that we're experiencing uh, so it's difficult to put it into any kind of specific here's a neat set of propositions that are what myth or the mythos are but I would say that there are shared story and it goes, it goes very, very deep that we have this kind of shared story that, that we come from as individuals. So I like to, you know, I can't, we don't know how this began. It's not a historical uh, document for us, but I look at something like um, 
the the ancient cave paintings that we find which date back from like 15,000 and I think some of them have been dated back as far as 30,000 years and I would say that these are our oldest form of storytelling and you look at those cave paintings and they're spread around the world we have them here in Indonesia where I am you know you can find them in the the caves of France as well and they're basically they're depictions of hunting and they're depictions of the human relationship with animals and with the natural world and you try and put yourself into those early humans and the, the shift from to becoming a hunter or becoming a hunting culture and redefining our our existence with the natural world and it happens in a story we tell the story of this probably in interaction with uh you know the development of the techniques of hunting let's say but in the story we give it a value like the heroic hunter who's going out and taking on this dangerous task and in telling the story we become that character or that archetype a very early human archetype and this is what we do with with myths as the the actual telling of the story and the mythos which is then the shared understanding the shared story the shared culture between us that we then are all embodying in in life and you fast forward 15,000 years from there and we're into a shared mythos of um living in a big city and commuting together and being capitalist and competing in this big rat race you know and that's only the the surface level of the story but it's shared between all of us and it's still there as a mythos and over that time we've gone through many stages of development about what our our shared story is together what our mythos is uh, and I think maybe just to put that in the context of Viveki and the meaning crisis that I would argue at some point 500 years ago um, we, we come into a new stage of our mythos and it's the mythos of the early mythos of modernity, the mythos of how science is showing us the universe. Um, but unlike the earlier mythos, let's call it the, the religious mythos, you know, in its different instantiations around the world, for the Western world, it's the, the Christian mythos. This new modern mythos um, doesn't integrally give us an identity in fact it places us further and further from the center of existence and you know in science fiction we get into things like um i speak quite a lot about mary shelley's frankenstein which is generally acknowledged as the first science fiction novel um because in there you see uh like a great artist of the mythos she's going to create a great myth that will last 200 years she's only 19 years old when she does this but she's tussling with the idea of what does it mean for human beings basically to be machines this is what science seems to be showing us now we were before this we were some kind of 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 child of god let's say and there's great meaning implicit in that but now we're just like a mechanism uh, and if we're a machine, then you can take the machine apart and put bits of it together and make a new machine, which is what Frankenstein is, a great science fiction idea. Um, but of course, as a human, there's a great deal of horror implicit in that con context because of the lack of meaning. And then the monster in Frankenstein 
is tussling with that lack of meaning. He's in the existential crisis of the modern, the modern human, basically. I, and I, I think just... this is where we find ourselves in a kind of, sorry, a, a, a meaningless mythos of, of modernity and trying to find meaning within it. Yeah. Well, I think one of the, the, the sort of uh, horror we feel at that mechanistic story mm. um, is, is we feel the partiality of the truth of it, that it, mm. it's not a whole truth. And um, so in this podcast, I talk a lot about first, second and third person perspectives. Um, mm. The first person being subjective, second person being intersubjective and the third person being mm. the objective world. And yeah. science and modernity kind of tried to colonize the other perspectives to make everything third person. And that kind mm. of relates to that, what you're seeing, that feeling of us being decentered from the story. And mm -hmm. although um, the third person perspective and objectivities very powerful and is true, it's it's part of the story. And I think mm. that the, the violence of that colonizing the other perspectives is what we feel is that kind of, yeah, it's just there's something off about this mechanistic view. Mm. Um, even though there's a lot of truth to it, you know, we can in medicine, we can treat our bodies like a machine, you know, in, with surgery mm. and that kind of thing, but it's not the whole thing. I've, I think the, the, the despair issues, not entirely, but in large part are, um, are for many people, there may be a sense that there's something missing, but there's no conscious uh, way out that they can find from the modern mythos, which has been built from them. So, I would often work with with young men who um, were were trying to deal with the idea that they were a machine, and they were having the kind of existential crises around um, not having free will, uh, not existing as as uh, as a being, and this was often wound up with things like um, drug abuse or alcohol abuse, which people had turned to. Uh, because of their despair as a way out of it um and it, it's what the the core of their problem was that they couldn't find any way out of this mental model of themselves that the mythos uh had had given to them um and i think you see this in like some of our some of the tellings of our myth i've been thinking quite a lot about uh i don't know if you're familiar with games workshop and and Warhammer forty thousand. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I, I've never played so, it, but I've always admired it, and from an aesthetic <laughs> point of view, for my entire life. Yeah, you can look through the window and see like the little oh, miniatures yeah. that are painted, and there's a tremendous amount of creativity. Yeah, uh, the core of it is like the Space Marine, and the Space Marine is this genetically engineered human who's like nine feet tall. Uh, and interestingly, the Space Marines actually as as they're more senior, they just get bigger. So it's like a literalization of this masculine myth. And then they're just encased in armor. They wear this big metal power armor. And their only task is just to fight the alien within the Warhammer uh, universe. And this is just like one manifestation of, of being the machine man. You, know, you can see it in Star Wars as well. Like, 
what is the empire? It's like clones and they all fly around in machines and Darth Vader is uh, a part machine, part man. And he's potentially your, your father as well. So the, the science fiction mythos repeats this idea of, of being a man who is also a machine, Iron Man as well. Uh, and But in science fiction, we're often trying to give that meaning without any of that second or third person. And I think that's where science fiction often struggles in its uh, becoming stuck, I mean, in the third person view and entirely eliminating second and first it, it's it's in uh, when you describe the the marine the space marine is a little mm. bit like an echo of that archaic hunter that it, it's really interesting that mm. slaying the beast is a very very popular uh theme story mm. theme in science fiction and fantasy films mm -hmm. but when you think about secular modern people they never they're never slaying beasts you know, like in the old, I mean, it's if it, in England, you know, the sort of biggest animal we've got yeah. to deal with is a badger, you know, so yeah. <laughs> it, it, but it's interesting how sort of perennial that myth, that story's been, mm. you know, yeah. even though we're not quite then it, and perhaps that reflects the more psychological dimension of that myth, rather than mm. it being just as simple as a tra as a kind of templating off the actual physical act of hunting beasts mm -hmm. you know perhaps it's more along this kind of archetypal storyline of coming to terms with the darker sides of your own nature or something and mm. you know do you just annihilate it like in a lot of stories it's like you slay the beast and everyone's really happy or is there some more complex uh, evolved narrative around that where you see in some films, I just, or, or I can't think of one off the top of my head where the beast becomes integrated and, you know, there's some kind of integration of the beast into yes. the, the, the sort yeah, of yes. more, what you might call yeah. more evolved parts of ourselves. And can mm. you think of an example that? that yeah, I mean, um, Ursula Le Guin works with that in the, the Earthsea saga, her fantasy novels, which are kind of an influence on on Harry Potter so it's a young a young man called Ged and he's going to become the archmage wizard of this fantasy land uh, but Le Guin kind of follows his his progress to there and his um, his story begins with he's he separates his shadow from himself uh, so she's working with these kind of Jungian archetypes and his shadow runs off into the world and he has to go and get the shadow back and ultimately the shadow has kind of manifested as a vast dragon at the end of the world and then he has to reintegrate that um back into himself and that's one it's one of the better tellings because yeah you're absolutely right we have this archetype which goes all the way back to the beginning of wherever our mythos began of the hunter and the, the slaying of the beast that's potentially dangerous to the tribe and um the value we attach to that is that if you slay the beast, you're a hero to the tribe. Um, so the danger implicit in doing that has, has a payoff as well. And that's always built into the hero's journey. So Star Wars, again, it's very important that Luke, he slays the Death Star. So again, it's a slaying the beast narrative. Um, but he comes back and he is applauded by his new tribe and he's given, he's given a badge 
of honor, which is probably something we've been doing to young men for 15, 20,000 years now, s sticking a shell on them or a, a flower or something, a tattoo. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, or a, but then a, you put a, a penis gourd in uh, Papua New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm sure we've been doing it in all kinds of forms. <laughs> yeah. But then, then you have this problem now of um, uh, you 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 fast forward fifteen thousand years again again, and the young man who's still essentially the same psychological creation, and has these roots of like the hunting. Uh, archetype the hunter archetype although it's gone through transitions um where is the community to celebrate him or to 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 pin a a dried penis on him whatever it is um but we we still tell this hero story so it's there in star wars or you know there's hundreds of heroes journey stories that are basically this this hunter who's going to be celebrated by the tribe um but there's no way to fulfill this story for the vast majority of of young men in reality mm. so instead we go and we fill it in role-playing games or video games or like reading the same novels again or watching heroes journeys movies which give us like an aspect of it we can mentally fulfill it but we don't get the embodied experience of yeah. it. yeah so that makes me think so when you're describing these people you used to work with uh, and also your own situation uh, when you mm. got into this stuff that and us listening to your conversation with John Viveki, uh, and this kind of ties in with that that science fiction and fantasy is an what some people might describe as an escapism from your pain mm -hmm. you escape into mm -hmm. that myth mythos the mythological world <clears throat> where you um become more whole you know every time you enter it it's a healing experience you become more whole and so we've got this kind of slightly pejorative term escapism but mm -hmm. you could it's related to the term ecstasis and ecstasy mm. and yeah. um, ecstasy being getting out of your self your current perspective or your, your current mm -hmm. self and having a, a, a non-ordinary experience that's not mm. your ordinary life coming back and then you can actually mm. you can take a perspective on where you've been and craft forge some new story having you know have this kind of mythological download so you know that's the kind of there's the, the, the they're the two sides of the coin so to speak of escapism escapism mm. and ecstasis yeah you know, is there drug addiction versus uh conscious use of psychedelics yeah exactly you know, it's, yeah. it's that kind of two-sided coin yeah, there's a nice quote, which is um, I've used a few times from the science fiction community. Uh, and the first part of the quote comes generally is attributed to C.S. Lewis. Uh, and he says that uh, jailers hate escapism. Uh, you know, so Lewis would argue that our fantasy escapism is is taking us out of the jail in some way. And that's quite, a, you know, a Christian apologetic view you know that our um, mythological story structures are in themselves you know very high uh, value and then um, generally it's attributed to Michael Moorcock has his repost to this which is that uh, uh, jailers love escapism it's escape that they can't stand so that 
that escapist activity, whether it is the psychedelic trip or the, the virtual video again, actually um, whatever structures are imprisoning you, although they're probably internal rather than external, but um, the, the, whatever the jailer is, it's quite happy with you indulging escapism um, because you're not actually escaping yeah. in that process. That's a bit, a bit like people smoking spice in jail you know in in, in <laughs> sure. london or something you know it's yeah. it, it, rather than actually a, a, a proper escape from imprisonment yeah. might be um you know there's plenty of examples of people who have found religion or they found meditation or zen or something like that and they mm -hmm. are actually moving out of um a narrow identification that escape yeah. is, you know, in that sense, rather than just um, numbing your pain type of escape. Yeah. yeah. But that, um, so just coming back to this sort of mm. mechanism, mechanistic worldview, um, mm. that, um, so there's, a, so we've got this, this mythos and then logos. Um, mm. And so you've uh, been listening to your podcast a lot and you've been, mm. you talk about the, the Logos as, or Logos um, uh, mythos, th these date back to ancient Greece, but the, the Logos mm -hmm. is the kind of rational mind and the mythos is that kind of imaginal um, mm. world. Yeah. And the, interestingly, the, the term science fiction contains Logos and mythos. In, so mm -hmm. the science bit is the Logos, fiction is the mythos. So science fiction, just in the actual phrasing, that the naming of that kind of world space holds those two in view. But somehow modernity has kind of twisted things to kind of disown the, the mythos aspects of it and bring the logos mm. to the forefront. Um, and that's created a lot of problems. Uh, and I know you've talked a lot about that, and I wonder if you could sure. address that. Yeah, that was one of the wonderful discoveries of these dialogos discussions, as, as Viveki has has given us that term for them, because it was talking with him that this idea of science fiction as a symbolon really came out of that discussion, and that was the term that he used. And I'd thought about it a little bit before then, that you do have both logos and mythos united, and I now say this in the introduction to the science fiction podcast, that this is about what it's exploring when these these two things are, are brought into collision and great science fiction is is both of these so i think if you were to make a list of the science fiction movies and books and now video games and role-playing games that are really meaningful to people they are this balance of um some kind of mythic structure which we can't we can't uh put into propositions really it, it exists somewhere beyond there but it might be something like the hero's journey or the Jungian archetypes and we can somehow simplify it into that but it's it exists beyond there in whatever we want to call yeah the imaginal the dreaming uh the dreaming mind behind that and um, the rationalists now use like system one and system two to think about this division i never quite remember which is which <laughs> so you've got um 
also uh, Miguel Chris, you know, re returning to the idea of the left brain and the right brain. I'm, I also never quite remember which is which. Uh, well, um, uh, the, the left being the, the logical language based hemisphere, mm -hmm. and the right being the kind of more imaginal, um, yeah. you know, more silent type. But, I, yeah. you know, I, just as a footnote, I think, and McGill Christ has uh, addressed this recently, but I, I think uh, these systems are a bit more distributed throughout the brain. It seems yeah. to be neuroscience leaning more towards that as time goes on. Um, yeah. not, not quite in the kind of very partitioned way that we were thinking about it 20 years ago or whatever. But um, yeah. I mean, that's just a footnote that for people yeah. to look up. No, absolutely. And it's worth saying because people get turned off by that left brain right brain uh, analogy because they've been told it's being debunked and it's, so it's on. a sort of useful orient a generalization to, you know to make yeah. a point really right? yeah. yeah yeah um but we keep tripping over this division you know we're finding it through different disciplines uh and elsewhere that we have some kind of uh like targeting system that is our conscious thinking mind and something else beyond that and the imaginal I think is a good term for it as well um and then so where do we actually get these to meet and I think science fiction is probably the primary meeting point and the significant well, and thing I just uh, just want to say yeah. just in case anyone was thinking you and I are fans of the logos you know I mean we <laughs> you and I uh, we both very much I'm assuming uh you know yeah. I'm speaking for you but I love science I love mm -hmm. the science aspect of science fiction. It's not like we're saying mm -hmm. rationality is bad, uh, modernity is bad. You know, what we're just highlighting is that um, it's becoming extremely partial and lopsided and needs to kind of uh, dust yeah. off and polish up this mythos side to, to make yeah. something that's, that can really deliver on its promise. Yeah. Um, that's a really complex uh, argument actually you know for mcgillchrist it is uh uh what what's the title of his book the master uh, and the emissary or, yeah or the, the master Maurice. and the emissary uh you know and there's it's often attributed to the buddha that the mind is a, a wonderful servant but a terrible master uh so i i think ultimately i fall onto that balance i think that uh you wilbur would call it the big mind is is the more powerful of of the two uh and we are like constantly being pulled into uh the logos and its powers um because it 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 offers something uh very immediate that that side of our conception can understand there is the rewards of it are very immediate uh, then they're so blatant the the actual power yeah. of the logos that you know we've got an international space station that I see fly over yeah. every night in the exactly. sky and yeah. all the cars and the industry and computers. It's like right yeah. in your face. But yeah. what's interesting is that's only the, that's only the visible aspect. So it's a bit like the observable universe versus mm -hmm. what everything else is dark matter. And I think I was thinking of like an iceberg. You've got the, the tip of the iceberg. We can actually see is this kind of logos part. But then under mm -hmm. the water is the imaginal, the, the, the mythos, yeah. the world of mythos. Yeah. And then the, 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 the actual sea itself mm -hmm. is that kind of primordial 
naked awareness that they talk a lot about in Hinduism and Buddhism and yeah. uh, some Christian mysticism and that. And the, you know, um, the, 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 the submerged part of the iceberg, no, sorry, let's talk about mm -hmm. the, the, the other uh, element of the, the analogy that um, Logos is downstream of mythos. You know, it's, mm. it, our, our rational mind is downstream of the imaginal. Yeah. Um, and then the imaginal is downstream of bare consciousness. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, and, and the conscious, the bare consciousness pervades all of it in the same way that the iceberg is made out of seawater, mm -hmm. um, you know, right through to the tip of the iceberg. Um, yeah. But <clears throat> people that are very wedded to their kind of rational side forget that it is actually downstream of the imaginal. And mm -hmm. people, this is the mistake people keep making with modeling behavior during COVID or whatever is they, they kind of, you know, thinking or, or this kind of economic modeling of people, assuming people mm -hmm. are more rational than they actually are. Um, mm. And we all think we're more rational than we are. And if you watch enough Darren Brown shows, you realize that's way off. I mean, do, do you like Darren Brown? Mm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. So it, it kind of things progress in that order and i think just acknowledging that order is is a helpful thing mm. yeah and you know i'm thinking about uh like the different parts of my my science fiction community so i i moderate uh, a big uh facebook group now which has about we're just heading up to thirteen thousand members and you know probably about 70 percent of that community uh are uh, very wedded to the the rational the scientific mind and they look to science fiction through well, i guess what you call the traditional definition of uh you take a piece of science and you extrapolate it uh into the future and that's what science fiction is and a lot of the the mythic side of science fiction is kind of uh invisible to them simply because they're not familiar with it so um usually people are familiar to some extent with Campbell's hero's journey. So you can see that in Star Wars. But then because of that, Star Wars is very often dismissed as science fiction. It's not real science fiction. It looks more than, like fantasy. And in the community, there's this ve this like eternal argument about what is science fiction and what is so would uh, an fantasy. Would, would the film The Martian or the story The Martian mm -hmm. be an example of that kind of yeah. extrapolation of science yes you know and, yeah and that colonialism of space you know that, yeah. that whole thing yeah and yeah. and so you, uh, and just to give an example just so for people listening they could get a handle on this that mm. so you've, you've named star wars but what, what could you name a couple of movies or or, or novels or something that or worlds that, that that very consciously and successfully combine the mythological and the the, the mythos and the logos together just so people can get a handle on what we're yeah yeah i mean um so if we look at the matrix for instance as well mm -hmm. that you have um the uh all of the ideas of cyberpunk and transhumanism virtual worlds that we might be trapped within ais robots um all of that and you can enjoy that as a kind of scientific extrapolation. And then it's also uh, a hero's journey 
a savior story, uh, very much like uh, the kind of New Testament Jesus Christ um, story, uh, and kind of woven with uh, Jungian archetypes. So the different characters represent like different parts of the the psyche as well. Uh, you could look at something like Blade Runner. So on one level, Blade Runner is yes, a story about robots or androids and uh, how androids might be treated in the future. Um, but then again, uh, with that, it's also a story about uh, slavery and uh, the other, and uh, also a very a Christian savior story as well. So whenever these stories, 2001 is another case, are um, very successful in the culture, they tend to now have both of these elements together. It's kind of uh, a very ancient mythological structure of one form or another onto which uh, the symbols of modernity have been placed, technology of various kinds. So you could, you can spot those ones that do, that, that combine the two successfully by their enduring value. Yeah, mm. I, I, uh, the ma people are still talking about the Matrix. People are still talking about um, Star Wars, and will people be talking about The Martian in thirty years' time? Probably not. You know, in a way that if it's if it's, uh, and that's how you could spot the difference between the two types of sci-fi, maybe. Yeah, uh, I mean, even The Martian, if you look at that story of of what people actually find appealing in it uh there is the kind of the progressive uh ideas of how he survives on uh the surface of of mars uh but he's also you know he's a robinson crusoe character definitely uh um, and then robinson crusoe is a you know a character thrown into the wilderness uh to where he is going to encounter himself uh, for the first time fully. Um, uh, so again, e even in something that is the more hard science fiction uh, model, if audiences engage with it at all, there's usually some kind of mythic seed in there because this tends to be true of all storytelling that we really uh, find value in. So we can't, so this is another thing I was thinking that this mythos is is the soup within which we are we, we we cannot escape it in the same way we can't escape our consciousness you know it's wherever we go there we are and yeah. um yeah <clears throat> so and that kind of brings back to one of the points i wanted to to, to really uh main themes of our conversation was that um, mm. in the psychological sense, if you disown an aspect of yourself, it doesn't go anywhere. It just, it's still operating, mm. but you're, you are not co-creating your life with that aspect of yourself. It's just, mm -hmm. it's, it is like that independent beast running around in the forest of yourself, uh, you know, trashing aspects of your life. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, that if, uh, you know, what, Perhaps I mean perhaps you're suggesting and, and what, what what I'm suggesting is that if science fiction were to consciously uh, reown and reintegrate 
um, that aspect in a, in a very ex in explicit way. Um, mm. Not, you know, not that you can actually think your way into this, but actually say that this is going to be part of all our stories. So let's kind of try and do this really well. Mm -hmm. um, it we're not mm -hmm. only talking about it's not like we're giving advice to science fiction creators only to say if you want to make a really enduring box office hit um you do this we're we're, we're concerned about people watching sci-fi reading sci-fi playing sci-fi games as an actual transformative experience for people that are kind of feeling mm. the funk of modernity that that they're kind of yearning for this transformational yeah. thing and and um you know, it ties in with some of the losses of rites of passage for young people. Um, and mm -hmm. psychedelics and sci-fi and fantasy, you know, they're, they're, they're part of something similar and they can, they can offer that initiatory experience to people. So if psychedelics wasn't going to be the way or, a, or an intense meditation practice wasn't going to be the way you were going to kind of transition into full-blown mm. adulthood or something. Sci-fi is a kind of technological, you know, using the technologies of writing and film and, and those kind of things and, and uh, to actually, it could actually be a transformational technology in itself. Part, part of one. It, it points to a, a problem that, that that we're dealing with because you know if i put myself into um uh the the feet of some of my science fiction community and they'll be saying look look guys you have your conversation about mythos but that's not what i'm doing here and for one science isn't a mythos so you just be off uh with with that line of thinking uh which uh, there's absolutely no reason for them not to hold that position because um, to put myself in their shoes, you know, uh, as we say, the, 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 the modernist mythos uh, is apparently providing very, very great results. Uh, and it is, uh, it's the high ground of culture at the moment. So there's, there's actually no, there's no authority in your culture um that is going to tell you that this is at least in part a kind of a mythic story that you're living out whereas if you are raised in you know some parts of america where you're still brought up really in the the christian mythos there's a lot of authorities that are going to tell you uh, that 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 view of the world has its uh limitations and the thing about whatever our mythos is, is that uh, to us, it's not a story, at least in, not until we've gone further and individually deconstructed it for ourselves. It, it is the model of the world that our culture uh, has given us. So now I think we have uh, lots of people in the world and you could kind of pin the kind of the Sam Harris uh, new atheist uh a badge just to collect them as a as as a tribe who are um you know fully in the modern mythos uh and science fiction is a kind of uh champion of that uh for them and they're not particularly interested in the mythic aspect uh of it and i think that 
it, this points to lots of things that are happening in the world uh, at the moment, because if you're you're in that place, then I think you're more at risk of these diseases of despair that we're talking about, because it's questionable what meaning the modern mythos gives to you. Uh, and you're going to take certain positions like in our culture wars that are going on at the moment where anybody who's trying to unpick that modern mythos and maybe step into post-modernity of some kind looks like, uh, looks like an enemy to you. Uh, so this is kind of a formative way of thinking for me that we have, you know, I guess in the Wilberian stage model, we are, we're at the, the modern stage very much it dominates our society. So the question is, how do we as individuals, you know, get stuck in it or, or move beyond it? Does that make sense to you, Ralph? It does, yeah. And it, it makes me think of one of the, one of the dominant themes of uh, secular modernity is evolution. That's one of the sort of grand mm -hmm. narratives, the stories, mm -hmm. the themes, almost you might say the mythos, you know, one of the sort of... Uh, um, and when you look at history uh, and you look at the history of science, the, the sort of paradigms of science have shifted dramatically over the last 300 mm. years. Uh, and then they went, uh, underwent an enormous one in the last 100 years with um, the sort of, uh, sort of uh, cross-fading from Newtonian science into um, quantum mm -hmm. stuff. And I mean, in a way, I feel that mainstream culture hasn't quite digested the discoveries and implications of quantum physics. Um, when I, I, I'm mm. really excited. I've got Bernardo Castrup uh, lined up as a guest on my podcast, and um, he mm -hmm. is into something called analytic idealism. And he's he's a physicist. He works at CERN, mm. um, but he his view is that all that exists are actually qualia of a uh, universal mind. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, he 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 probably would come in and make several tweaks to what I just said, but um, you know the kind of opposite view mm -hmm. of that is that everything is just quantity, and that's that kind of horrific side of the mechanistic worldview is that there's nothing but mm. quantities. There's no room for qualities, um, and that's the kind of thing that feels so horrific. Uh, to you know on a sort of subjective mm. emotional and myth mythological um so and so the, 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 what i'm bringing up there is that when you actually take evolution seriously and you apply it to the future the science of a thousand years time is going to look very different and it's going to be running on different sort of mythological or uh, narrative operating systems than it is now do you know what I mean? So it's like we mm. can't actually step outside of the logos of where we are at the moment because that's coming in the future. Mm. And only future humans will be able to look back at us now and say, oh, dear, those poor, they thought they were machines and, you know, they thought they could uh, upload their consciousness. <laughs> and um, yeah, you know, perhaps that transhumanism may turn out to be bullshit and the hard problem really is a hard problem and it's going to be a hard problem forever. And, you know, Mm -hmm. those kind of questions i mean did, that was a real word salad but is, is anything no no there? that was very useful sense. actually <laughs>
Yeah, no, it would be a it would be a very good science fiction story, like one of the classic archetypes of the science fiction story is the alien arrives and they look mm -hmm. at Earth and they see how crazy it is. But you know, a future human looking back on where our civilization is, and that line you said there, crazy. They actually thought they were machines. That's how yeah. basic their understanding of them of themselves was. Uh, and I really think that's where we are. I increasingly find the um, the whole complex of ideas that are transhumanism uh, very, very horrifying in what they are, um, but also horrifying because so many people really believe them. If Maybe if we call them like the followers of Elon Musk now, that we're, we're going to have brain implants, we're going to be uploading ourselves. Um, and whenever people's... Um, Jonathan Pajot, who I was talking with yesterday on a Rebel Wisdom thing, um, you know, he talks about the way that a lot of these stories, they're always there, they're always out at the edge of the culture. And the real religious practice is like the embodied practice. And it's, it's when the, the religious practice has fallen apart that the stories kind of come in and start to dominate people's consciousness. So I think that those transhumanist stories which were on the outside, because we have no effective religious practices now, have kind of rushed into the center ground. Uh, and it reminds me really of like uh, kind of the peak of the power of the Catholic Church when they're, you know, really uh, trying to, you know, save people from hell on earth and, and manifest the angels into reality, because the church itself had kind of become so corrupt at that point. It's got it's got immortality. Um, it's got the kind of mm -hmm. fallen, fallen yep. nature of the human condition. You know, like the stated aim is to yeah. do away with death forever. You know, that uh -huh. yeah. The, you know that that meshes very very much with um, you know this Christian theology. Uh, interestingly, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I think I might yeah, have interrupted I mean, you. No, no, I, I'd come to an end, but um, when you said Christian theology there, I think what's interesting for me at the moment, and I, I don't have the depth of knowledge in uh, Christian history as to what extent we're kind of repeating the same patterns that brought Christianity into the world in the kind of the spiral dynamic spiral that we're further developed, but we've come back to kind of the same stage again and uh, you know, uh, kind of Western civilization as the collapsing Roman Empire and kind of postmodern philosophies as Christianity kind of attacking it in some way. These are quite formative ideas for me, but it does seem like we have some kind of uh, uh, historical parallel of that kind going on at the moment. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I think we've seen Q, Q and on and all things, you know, things like that. And there's these Titanic mm. battles between good and evil. And <clears throat> um, <clears throat> these, these themes really um, uh, are all over the place. I'm just looking at my uh, notes that the, um, what, so this is two main themes that you, uh, you've kind of, outline there was this sort of initial phase of sci-fi which was about colonizing space and exploring space and then when mm -hmm. we actually found out how large space was and that our solar system doesn't look like it's inhabited um 
that really kind of like the air went out of the balloon uh you know and the wind went out of the sails mm. of that thing of like we're going to colonize space in the st star trek sense um oh that was what i was going to say okay maybe can i mesh mesh this into that well okay think of a star trek that uh i'm going to attribute this idea to carter phipps but it may not have been him that came up with it but it's called the flintstones fallacy and i love this 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 uh, reason i mm -hmm. wanted to tie this in with the evolutionary uh view that the flintstones fallacy is that the flintstones are cave people living in caves say uh fifty thousand years ago but they are basically like modern americans that living yeah in that time and if if you went back fifty thousand mm -hmm. years ago you would not be able to communicate with these people uh you would hardly share any yeah. values you know it's uh it, when you think people evolve, uh, you know, over these stretches of time, um, people were, were even if in medieval times, you, you it would be like going to, if you went back to medieval England would like be going back to uh, going to a completely different culture It'd be like going living with a tribe in Papua New Guinea or something, you know, that disorientating. Mm -hmm. um, and the Flintstone fallacy crops up a lot in sci fi too. that you just sort of imagine it. So when you think mm -hmm. of Star Trek, that's star trek is thousands of years in the future is it mm -hmm. something like that and star trek is let's say like uh 300 years okay actually it's a relatively future story yeah but but in a way it sort of portrays people like they are now living 300 years in the future yeah. but in 300 yeah. years people will be so different that your shared values will be winnowed down to a, just a tiny bandwidth and you'll barely be able yeah. to understand the world you're in and i don't know whether it's possible for sci-fi to try and make you know some media that represents something totally outside where we are now and maybe it wouldn't it, we, we wouldn't it wouldn't make any sense to us it wouldn't be successful and you know because no one would understand it but it, it's yeah. just something to to think about you know, and I think I, I love this idea of the Flintstones fallacy. Um. Yeah, Terence McKenna would often say that, um, uh, you know, if you meet an alien and you can talk to them, that's not an alien. That's just yeah. a weird looking human. <laughs> and, and what we're presenting really are, are weird looking humans. Yeah. Uh, and our future humans like Star Trek is uh, especially the next generation is uh, it's just the kind of neoliberal corporate project in space. I, I've actually uh, read through a Star Trek Next Generation script uh, and tried to just imagine it happening in a corporate office of like a tech startup in Silicon yeah. Valley because they're all just on the bridge and stuff is coming in through computers at them. Uh, and they're, they're so inhumanly, uh, you know, disciplined and rigorous, and they have no human drives either, which is very much how we see our kind of corporate world. Um, completely untrue if you have any interactions with the, the corporate world. Um, and yeah, so we have this vision of the future that is really just a fantasy that we can carry on being exactly as we are. That's really the point of the story that our society as it is in this point of time that we are attached to the values of um, can just continue indefinitely. We can build 
bots and good machines and go to other worlds and it will be all like it is now um which is very it's a very comforting story for people you know star trek is incredibly comforting that's why it's so popular um because it 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 gives a whole framework of meaning really to what we're doing uh we are we're building new technology to take us into a better future this is the core of the kind of progressive political ideal really uh there's a much better future out there we can get there with our ingenuity and intelligence and by being better reasoned and more rational uh and star trek is the fulfillment of of that um the problem is you know is is it actually attainable for us and the real barrier to that is uh the we, we probably can never in any meaningful way get off this planet. When you start to look at the futures that are before us there, then science fiction starts to look at things like um, in the environmental impacts that we're having on the planet. So that really starts in the 1960s in seed form in science fiction. Um, uh, and it, you know, it provides some of the ideas that end up woven into to global warming as well uh you get uh this incredible focus on um dystopias because the question is how can we resist this kind of continual drive to overwhelming uh state power which we kind of talk about a lot um you get the cyberpunk vision of kind of being dominated by uh corporations and this is all really a very active conversation about how do we live on this planet uh together and the problem is is that nobody has a, a positive vision of this yet we either go crazy and kill each other or our political tendencies are exacerbated out to the the maximum yeah so i'm going to come back to these two themes so we've we've sort of touched on this sort of Mm -hmm. wanting to colonize space that's kind of realized that you know you say realistically the chances of getting off this planet are looking quite slim at the moment in, in any meaningful way you know we might have a couple of mm -hmm. missions to mars or something but you know we'll see it, it but uh people will be uh starting to look at exploring inner space consciousness and and those kind mm -hmm. of stories but yeah. just before we explore that um i thought of something when you were saying about um Oh, the, dyst the dystopian. So, you know, this is something that is right in our faces that the dystopian, you know, if you were to kind of have two bins, protopian and dystopian, sci-fi and fantasy movies, you know, I, there'd be the, 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 the dystopian bin would be full and there'd just be a, a few mm -hmm. piffling little, you know, contributions <laughs> in the protopian <laughs> view. Okay. And I think that's a real problem. And I came across mm. uh, a quote by Kevin Kelly, which I'll just quickly read, which I thought was really good. Kevin mm. Kelly, for those who are listening, he uh, was a founder of the, the magazine Wired, and he's a futurist and you know, generally a, a really cool guy. Mm -hmm. So he says, here's why it's so hard to imagine an optimistic future. God is a million times more difficult to imagine than the devil. We find horror, evil, chaos, destruction much easier to describe in detail than the details of the good, true and beautiful. That's because the good and the true mm. and beautiful are improbable, while the destruction is prob... Oh, sorry, I'm going to say that again. That's because the good and the beautiful are improbable, 
while the destruction is probable, almost certain. That is the law of entropy. Everything wears down, runs out, breaks down and levels out into flat sameness. The universe is tilted towards its low mm. bottom, as is our imaginations. Uh, and that feeds into the negativity bias as a footnote. People might want to look into that. Um, on the other hand, ordered living systems are highly improbable. Life may be common in the universe, but every specific example of it is unlikely. Flowers might be common, but this particular species of flower is improbable. You and I are highly unlikely. The universe could roll its dice a trillion times and another one of you or I will never happen. All life exists along a narrow path. Its existence is highly unlikely and therefore highly difficult to predict, which is why we find it highly difficult to imagine optimistic futures. We have no trouble describing in very good detail catastrophe, destruction, extinction and the end of the world because these are inevitable states. But we find it near impossible to imagine a plausible, beneficial, supportive, desirable future because any of those specific futures are highly improbable. That is the nature of all good things. In a true cosmic sense, they are unlikely statistical outliers. So we have to get better mm. at believing in the improbable. And I thought that really addressed that issue. You know, what I mean, what, what, how do you feel about this dystopian, protopian kind of um, imbalance? Um, I, I see Kevin Kelly's argument there, and I think it is, uh, it's almost like a game theoretic argument in a way that there's, there's, there's certain uh, branching paths that are much easier for us to imagine our way down than, than others. I think that there's there's something um, psychological in there as well, spiritual maybe, uh, maybe as a way to get into this. That um, you know, if you're familiar with the uh, the spiral dynamics tiers, and you have like one of the early stages, which is stage stage red, which is the heroic stage, which is really like the formation of of the ego. Uh, and this kind of it goes back to like the the hunter archetype as well, that that we in the tribe, we've been a kind of animistic blob, but we now need you to be a a, a person, uh, an, an identity, a hero, and to go and do something, to go and kill the the monster. And we were we were probably at that stage red for a long time, like many many thousands of years, and it's a very powerful part of us. But it's also, you know, uh, the center of violence, like the, the most violent people are the unbounded stage red people, the people who are just like in their ego identity. And they have in their mind that some violent act is going to uh, uh, aggrandize their heroic identity and then they will just do it. So you see that in like gang member culture or organized crime, you know. The Sopranos are uh, uh, like stage red people manifesting that. But, um, you know, we also really profoundly need that stage of our personality. And so much of our storytelling is about that stage. So when we tell a dystopian story, like The Hunger Games, it's a very good example. You know, it, it's a celebration of that stage for the viewer. Because you, through Katniss Everdeen, you get put into the Hunger Games and you you literally with a bow and arrow, you kill, you kill the enemy and you are the manifestation of the hero. Or, you know, um, the Avengers movies, 
like that great moment in Avengers Endgame where it's just Captain America fighting Thanos. And Captain America is another kind of manifestation of this heroic identity within us, although he's a very functional form of the hero. And uh, really on some level, when we go into the storytelling, we're reaching all the way back to that oldest archetype and we want it activated because we need that, that part of us. Uh, so I think the problem of envisioning a, a better future is in some way, what does that part of us do in that better future? And I think you see this in, you can see it in COVID at the moment, like you know, particularly the, the kind of um, the half of American culture that is very anti the vaccine, anti the lockdowns and so on, is, um, you know, they're very invested in their heroic identity. And it doesn't have a place in this kind of progressive future, which is being drawn out. We're all going to cooperate and solve every problem as a collective, which might indeed be the best way to tackle most of these problems. But where does that, where does our heroic ego fit into that? And, you know, the modern identity also struggles with this, you know, stage orange and spiral dynamics as well, because it's quite closely related to the heroic identity stage. So I think for me, it's about the, the, the failure to integrate these different parts and a better future can't just be this kind of uh, collectivist uh, dream that we kind of have in our progressive politics at the moment, because we need to exist as individuals. We need something to fight. Uh, we almost need like a like an, an alien civilization to, to turn up as a threat to us so that we could all unite against it. Another common like science fiction idea as well. So I, we have to somehow find uh, a mythos for the future that integrates all of these elements from before as well, instead of deliberately excluding them, which is what so much of our kind of myth making does at the moment. Yeah, and perhaps integrates the heroic with the collective. You know the 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 heroic individual yeah. that that yeah. finds the promised land. You know, so uh, plus a great team. You know, so yeah. uh, or you know, team human, yeah. so to speak. That we yeah, uh, it's that kind of combination of of the, of the two, um, and uh, we're we're playing this out at the moment with uh, Novak Djokovic in in australia you know he's like as a tennis champion he's like the manifestation in modern culture of that heroic identity and he's it's not about any of the actual medical issues it's the refusal of that archetypal personality to join the collective or to bow to the collective and i see that playing out very strongly in our our culture and you you really nail it there these a story that unifies the heroic with the collective mm. difficult to do yeah yeah um so i just want to circle back to the second main mm. theme which is this kind of so uh colonizing space you know kind of wind's gone out of the sails a bit of that so now the direction has been turned inwards and you've got um films like inception I keep talking about films because I've been into sci-fi mm. and fantasy films my whole life. I've not been a, a big reader of the, of the, the 
novels and mm-hmm. literature. So that's kind of my, you know, uh, way I talk about it. But um, you've got um, uh, Inception and In the Dark Night, mm-hmm. Batman uses psychedelics and you've got Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a sequence in Doctor Strange where Tilda Swinton touches his forehead and it's one of the best psychedelics representations I've ever seen. Yeah, I love that I saw, sequence. I, yeah. I saw a better version of it, which was someone had taken it out onto YouTube and put a psytrance, uh, you know, music mm-hmm. to it, and and it didn't have the kind of original yeah. audio, which I thought was 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 really nice. But sure. So one of the things that about inner space is it doesn't lend itself to col- colonialism in the same way that. Um, Mm. DMT hyperspace uh you know when you go in there you kind of come out and you think well good luck trying to colonize that place you know it doesn't have the same rules as going to Mars um Mm -hmm. but perhaps you know with these sort of extended DMT experiences using drips and things where people can stay in the DMT hyperspace world for longer maybe there might be mm. some uh, interesting kind of cartography of that place but mm. the inner world is not doesn't have the same laws as the outer world which is interesting but you know what what are some of the best um sci-fi that you've come across which explore this kind of turning inwards yeah well 2001 stanley kubrick's 2001 which i've spoken about quite a bit um, is like the iconic moment in science fiction that the psychedelic takes over from the scientific. So you have the first half of the movie is looking at all the technology that humanity has evolved. And we follow that whole history from being the, the ape man to we've, with wielding the first bone to then having the satellites in space and so on. Um, and uh and but then in kubrick's movie the the technology can't actually take you further into space and how does dave bowman go into space he basically he climbs inside like the ai computer the manifestation of like the waking mind and he switches it off and then once he switched it off he goes on a a crazy drug trip into the into the infinite basically, and that's kind of Kubrick's symbolism. Uh, you get past the waking mind, which has been most of human history, and then you can actually go into the infinities of uh, of space. And, you know, it's interesting that for that uh, audience who are very wedded to the modern, the end of the movie is incomprehensible. And for people who've had one version of the psychedelic trip or another, it makes, you know, total sense. Oh, yeah, he's going into inner space, which is also outer space, uh, you know. Um, uh, and then, yeah, you have, you know, a whole realm of things which are kind of intertwined with um, the hippie counterculture and its flourishing. And then it's, it's death as well. And this is kind of the part that I've been thinking through about the turn to inner space. And it's very relevant with Viveki as well, I think, because I think, John Viveki's contribution at the moment is to is to say yes we need the religion that is not a religion we need this turn back to all of the psycho technologies but the problem is how do we 
not become uh, delusional in the process. Because of course the problem for the, the counterculture is it kind of splinters into all these kind of delusional sects of one kind or another. Um, and the, the what emerges in science fiction is this like unification of, and you see this somewhat in something like Inception that uh, the inner space is also dangerous that what emerges from inner space is potentially uncontrollable yeah. uh, or monstrous. Uh, it's, yeah. it's really interesting because the the danger of the objective world is that it colonizes the first person subjective world. Mm -hmm. And the delusional yeah. world, <clears throat> the delusional world is the first person experience and second person experience, the kind of individual yeah. and the cult colonizing the objective third person world. Um, yeah, and both are horror stories because they're 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 not fully mm -hmm. true. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think what we're uh, the point that we seem to be at in the culture is maybe we've had from from the eighties the kind of the rejection of exploring the inner world. Uh, you know, the illegalization of psychedelics. Um, the general uh, uh, pushing out to the edges of our culture, anything that is exploring the, the inner landscape. But that's been kind of flooding back into the culture and mostly because of the internet, I think. And uh, rebel wisdom has been kind of central to that. And uh, at least in my experience of it, uh, figures like uh, Jordan Peterson, who's, you know, kind of, representing mythic arguments for people and we seem to now be asking the question of uh how do we unify the two how do we unify first and third person how do we explore the inner subjective without becoming delusional uh maniacs uh in the in the process as well um and that is probably, I, I would imagine, like the seed for wherever our mythos goes next as well. Uh, and I'm sure it's going there. I just don't have specific examples to hand, but maybe we will find them. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the, the mythology being the kind of uh, study of myth and the mm. recognizing of the tools and techniques and the, the nuts and bolts of myth that's the toolkit mm -hmm. we can take into this inner exploration because that's the language mm. of, of the inner world. You know, the, yeah. the, the literal nuts and bolts are the language of the ex external exploration into space, the satellites, the yeah. space stations and all of that. And there's a different version of those things on the inside in a way. Mm. Um, so there, uh, just one other theme I wanted to explore with you. Um, are you okay? Have you got time for just like another five minutes? Yeah, sure. Let's cool. I, I've so enjoyed this conversation, Damon. It's been brilliant. Every, everything yeah, it's great. It be. Um, <laughs> so something that's very close to my heart is in in this in Hinduism, you've got Vedanta and then you've got Tantra. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, you, you can't exactly generalize these two because they're mm. they are very diverse and they've got lots of aspects to them that you could bring up an example of from either of these two as a counter argument mm. what i'm about to say but 
broadly speaking, Vedanta is about escaping the illusory world of mm-hmm. the small self with a capital S and mm-hmm. becoming the big self with a capital S. Um, and Tantra, so it's a kind of um, uh, transcendence mm. metaphysics. Ta- uh, non-dual Tantra being uh, a, a, a non-dual thing. So it's not, it's it's escaping, it's becoming the capital S, mm. with it, uh, but not in that kind of formless, spiritualized Gnostic sense. It's, it's also... Um, mm. uh, becoming the small self with a cat with a small s very very vividly mm. and with great love and rev- reverence and reverie um so it's just kind of you know mm. the non so you've got one side you've got a kind of slight quite a dualistic view and then you've got a non-dual view and i see the matrix has been perhaps i mean i don't some of the themes that are a bit lost on me and there is this kind of slight non-dual thing where neo meshes with the machines at the end or kind of turns into light and all the machines are light and then in these later movies they're working with the machines or some of the, the good machines and you know the, the latest version but it, it's it's a, it's a, it's sort of in that world of waking up from the matrix wake up from the illusion of samsara so it's wake up out of samsara into nirvana samsara is bad leave it mm-hmm. but this sort of tantric mm-hmm. non-dual move is to um wake up into nirvana and realize that samsara and nirvana are amazing um and mm. beyond there are shiva and shakti you know together mm-hmm. uh, in union and i would love to see some sci-fi representing the non-dual mythos mm. um and mm. have you seen anything like that and have i misunderstood the matrix to begin with uh no i don't think you have you know and it's very clear how we're just repeating the same philosophical ideological patterns that human civilizations have thousands of years because the whole the whole transhuman complex and cyberpunk from which it comes and kind of manifested in the matrix they're actually um deeply in love with the idea of escaping into the computer world which is just you know some kind of representation of nirvana because in in the virtual realms you will be able to have whatever you desire you can embody any identity that you want you won't be materially limited anymore and it's just you know a presentation of of heaven of, of nirvana that we can uh enter into uh and really i think the whole of science fiction is in some way or another in love with that idea and is uh deeply um uh uh drawn to disembodiment uh the basic act of kind of escaping into like a fantasy novel is very disembodied uh playing video games of course you know live role-playing perhaps well, that could be an example in the other direction but um and like you know one of the, maybe, the starting points sorry sorry mm-hmm. oh, do, do you think maybe avatar does it because it's got that transhumanist thing where you they upload their consciousness into different bodies but 
the the world of the aliens mm. that they upload into is a very nature-based almost kind of shamanic culture of nature mystics you know it's uh, yeah I, I don't think it sort of seamlessly does it because it is kind of you it sort of partitions you've got the kind of bad uh corporatist uh modernist um destructive sure. people and then yeah. the kind of the hippies with dreadlocks taking psychedelics and you know merging their consciousness with trees and things and um yeah but it, it, it's almost saying something do you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah, yeah uh, almost and i think you're asking a brilliant question here because it's it's a very core critique of of science fiction and fantasy is you know yes there is some kind of embodiment and into a natural world an avatar but it's very idealized and you know, and the, the tantric non-dual has to be like the acceptance of the the pain and suffering of existence. Uh, whereas, you know, and I think um, you know, the critique of science fiction from literary fiction, maybe closer, and literary fiction is much more concerned with detailing the gritty reality of what people are like and what psychological experience uh, um, is like generally. And it's a great it's a great argument for um, a balance between these things, because I, I, I think one of the answers to where we are at the moment, um, and, uh, you know, Rafe Kelly makes this, this point very well, uh, is embodiment and returning into, you know, the lived experience of our, of our bodies. And science fiction really doesn't want to do that. It, it's drawn away from it. Uh, uh, again and again, as is as is fantasy. Yeah. Well, yeah. this has been such a rich conversation, um, and I'm so grateful. Um, so, if people want to find out more about you, uh, I know you've got a lot of stuff. Um, and where would you point people? Uh, DamienGWalter.com, uh, or if you Google Damien Walter, there's uh, there's two of us, and the other one is our Hollywood parkour stuntman. So it's very easy to get as confused, uh, but it will generally navigate you to to my website, and you can find the science fiction podcast on there, uh, the science fiction community on Facebook, and also my other kind of like essay writing and so on as well. Thank you for inviting me on. Uh, it's been really, really a cool discussion. Yeah, I've loved it. Um, and yeah. uh, just one comment to end on for people to take away who are listening, um, that the science fiction and the mythos of science fiction is don't just be a passive consumer. We need to enact this stuff. The, the transformation happens through mm. uh, templating off these uh, mythological themes and actually living it yourself and becoming something. So um, I just wanted to like make that point just before we end. Yeah. So thank you so much, Damien. Really appreciate it. And thank uh, you. Have a, have a great night in uh, Bali. Quite jealous. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>